Good morning again. My name is Aaron Stogner. I am the new uh, pastoral intern here at Snoqualmie Valley Bible Church. Uh, if you haven't met me or my wife, uh, I'm Aaron, and that's my wife, Jennifer. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here and to be so warmly welcomed by you all. We'll be uh, looking, we'll be going through the book of First Peter. Uh, they, they, encouraged, uh, they encouraged me back in Los Angeles when I was coming up here to try to get behind uh, Pastor Carl's preaching as best I could. And I thought, what better way to start in the book after the, bu- the book he's preaching through? So he's going through James. I'll be going through uh, about two or three pages behind him. If you turn to First Peter, we're going to uh, look at the first two verses. He, he writes... Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. If you'd pray with me, please. Our heavenly, gracious Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the reminder for what you have accomplished on our behalf in your precious Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that through the next few minutes that you would help us to have a more clear picture of the salvation that you planned in eternity past and that you brought to fruition through the costly sacrifice of Jesus that you applied to us through the Holy Spirit and that you manifest to the rest of the world and to each one of us in the changed lives that you make in us and in the salvation, in the deliverance, the redemption and the glory that you will one day reveal to us. Help us to rest. Help us to be satisfied and confident and comforted in these realities. May grace and peace truly abound to us. Amen. Well, why why go through Second Peter? Well, I firmly believe that just as it was for the early church, the charge to stand firm to be encouraged, satisfied, and to rest and built up in Christ is just as relevant for me and for you and for all of us here this morning as it was for the first century church. The church was, has been, still is, and will be a called out people because God's people have always been called out and set apart. The church still experiences suffering in this world just as it did two millennia ago because God's people have always been afflicted by God's enemies. And the church is still the recipient and the steward of the more sure prophetic word which Peter will refer to the scriptures in the next book. And because of that, God's people have always had the obligation to hear and to, to discern his word in contrast to the myriad of impostors and counterfeits that are always readily available. And most importantly, 
the church still needs to keep her eyes on Jesus Christ and rest on the magnanimous work that he accomplished for her. And sadly, there are so many churches that seem to preach and teach just about everything but Christ today. That's why I'm preaching through Second Peter, as we, or First Peter, sorry, as we go through this book, many, uh, all of these issues will be looked at. Now, let's take a few minutes just to look at some of the background info, so you can see the the picture of what's going on. The author is Peter, which is why the book is called First Peter. It's his first letter, and he is one of the twelve disciples who became the apostles, and he's writing to. Uh, a conglomerate of churches in the Asia Minor uh, Turkey area of the world. This is the, the large body of mass uh, a couple hundred miles north of, Jeru- of, of Israel. And the, bod- the church bodies that he is writing to most likely are constituted of his former church members. You see, Christians have always been seen as weird, as the odd man out, because of, uh, because of some rumors that were spread about them, beginning with communion being some weird uh, love feast. The r- rumors went out that Christians were cannibals because they talked about eating the body of Christ and drinking his blood. And certain Christian practices, such as being obedient to Jesus Christ before traditions of your own family, made Christianity abhorrent to many cultures in the old world. And so your neighbors, even going things as simple as going to the market, even your own family would ostracize you. And this would culminate, this would reach... Uh, uh, a catalyst when in 64 AD the emperor of Rome a man by the name of Nero who historians can say with pretty good confidence that he was insane uh, he had a building complex he loved to build he loved to build and when there was no more room to build Rome he burned a bunch of it down and people started pointing the fingers at him. And so Nero needed a scapegoat. And who better than this odd little cabal of relig- uh, weirdo religious fanatics, the Christians? So that, that is just on the horizon. Persecution is coming. Persecution and hostilities are rising. And that uh, martyrdom is just around the corner. Peter is an apostle, which means a sent one. And while the word itself doesn't necessarily mean anything special by itself, Jesus Christ instituted the office of apostle, and then it became something really important. And you can see that in Luke 24 and Acts 1. The apostles' chief responsibilities were proclaiming Jesus, preaching repentance, preaching the forgiveness of sins, preaching that one must have faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. And Peter, alongside James, who you've become familiar with in the last several months, Peter became a bold pillar in the early church. 
and we you can see that very easily in the in his sermons in the first several chapters of the book of acts and i love peter to be more precise i love the mercy and the grace that our lord showed to peter because when you read about when you read the gospels and you see the things that peter said peter suffered foot and mouth syndrome peter suffered foot and mouth syndrome and often speaking his mind and the text indicates uh implies to us that as the leader of the 12 he spoke the whole group's mind but what's good for all of us is we can see through the lord's grace to him that peter learned and acquired a pastor's heart after peter swore to the lord that he would never desert him just a few hours later he uh i'm sorry after swearing that he would never desert him and that he would even lay down his life for Christ a few short hours later we can see peter swearing with with the same angst that he didn't know the lord and he denied him three times peter had indeed become a broken man and his faith was severely attacked and jesus even told him that satan himself had asked permission to sift him like wheat. And Peter along with the rest of the apostles would come to know through first-hand experience the suffering and the attacks and the mockery, the slander, the beatings, the persecutions, the imprisonments that you can see them receive in the book of Acts. Peter knew what it was like to go through trial. Peter knew what it was like to go through hardship and he knew what it was like to have one's faith tested now peter is probably writing in rome around 6 somewhere between 60 to 63 ad the church the churches have been established for about 20 25 years paul has gone on se- several of his missionary journeys pa- uh, peter doesn't explicitly say within the te- the book where he's writing from uh although tradition says that Peter spent his latter days in Rome and he does have a kind of a cryptic reference to Babylon in 5:13 so most likely he's in Rome Rome seems to fit that archetype and he mentions persecution so not but not not martyrdom so that's why i i think it suggests that the nero persecution hadn't quite started yet because martyrdom did certainly come so why did peter write well peter knows great hardship is coming he was there when the lord taught all the troubles and horrors that would come culminating in the great tribulation and peter pastor peter wants to encourage the church of jesus christ to stand in the greatest strength they have the grace of god revealed in the gospel of jesus christ the absolute sure knowledge that in christ you are forgiven of your sins and you will one day be saved from this sin-cursed lawless world peter wants the christian's eyes to remain fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ and if you if you just leap over to chapter 5 verse 12 you can see this it's great 
It's great when the writer of a book tells you why he's writing. Sometimes you have to read through the book several times and try to pick up the theme, look for reoccurring words, but it's great when they tell you why they're, why they're writing. Look at, look at the second half of verse 12. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Look, look at that. What does Peter want you to do concerning the true grace of God? Stand in it. Stand firm in it. That's what Pastor Peter wants for us this morning. He wants the church to know that contrary to what popular Christian personalities say today, it's not the end of the world when we are hit with suffering. That God's anger is not on you because you didn't get that job. That you're not a failure because you haven't realized some grand dream destiny thingy in your life. That God has not abandoned you when the test result comes back positive. Or when a child dies unexpectedly or a spouse leaves you. Because these things do happen to those within the household of God. And when you are ridiculed for your faith, when your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends or family learn that you believe the Bible is the word of God and you have the audacity to suggest to them that God has the right to define what is truth. God has the right to define what is moral and what is good. And that when man's values and principles and laws are found to oppose and to contradict, contradict God's definition, then what are we called at that point when we point that out? We're called haters. We're called bigots. We're called intolerant, self-righteous, judgmental. And Peter wants every one of you to know that when that happens, when the suffering hits, it's not because of any wrong that you've done. If anything, expect it because it confirms what God has said concerning your salvation. Remember that the world did not receive Christ. How much more will they malign and tr- poorly treat the servants than they did the Master? So again, Peter's great word for us this morning is, Let grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Let grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And these words, these words are very rich. These are very rich, very important words because of what they convey to us. And there's something so interesting about our society. And I think, I think Daniel touched on that in our, uh, in our conversation this morning about um, worship styles and the the depth of words that are put into our into our music when we come to worship the Lord, but there is just this fascinating thing about our society where we play fast and we play loose with the meaning of words i mean in fact that there are philosophical circles for the last ten to twenty years that argue that words don 't mean anything that you can 't know anything. All that's really important with language is what does language do for you in the moment, in your little bubble? And so it can become all too easy to use words without thinking what they really mean and how they really relate to reality. So when, when Peter says grace and peace, 
I mean, those things sound nice, but do, do we really take time to stop and to think about what it means for a herald of God to proclaim to you and to me grace and peace to you? Now, let's, let's, let's look at these words briefly. Grace is defined as a benef- beneficent disposition towards someone. It is favor. It is goodwill. It is a kind inclination. It's, it's a tendency for one to show goodness to another. And usually, at least biblically speaking, it is independent upon anything that you do to get it. That's grace. And I love that word. The second is peace. And this word expresses uh, harmony. It expresses tranquility. It expresses mutually kind interaction toward one another. And these are what, these are what we naturally want because they sound great. Now I want to come back and apply them theologically at the conclusion, but let's agree that we naturally want them but we do not naturally experience them in life, at least not substantially. I think we can agree on that. Just read a newspaper. And we know from Scripture, we know theologically that this is because of sin in the world. This is because of God's curse upon a sinful world. You can read that in Genesis 3. And so the world has become a naturally ungracious, an unpeaceful place to dwell. And Christians are thus different from those who live in the world in that we have become God's recipients of grace and peace through what? The gospel. And as one who speaks for God, whose job it was to preach and to teach the scriptures and all the things concerning Christ that was entrusted to him, Peter encourages the churches to rest and to be satisfied in the grace and peace that they were given. And that is very, very good news for all of us to hear. When the prophet spoke, when the apostles spoke or dispensed God's revelation to the people, his message was not unique. He was one who, one who spoke for God was not like this plethora, this multitude of voices that we hear today. We, you can get a number of psychologists that will tell you to do this or to do that. Psychologists and counselors and philosophers, most of whom will contradict one another, and yet they are always ready to give you their take on life and why this or that happened and what we ought to do about it. But being a Bible church, we don't turn to the philosophers. We don't turn to the counselors. We don't turn to the psychologists, we turn to the Word of God because Peter actually says in the next book that it was given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he, he moved, he superintended men to write so that what we have in the Scriptures is exactly what God intended us to have. And what we have is true and reliable and trustworthy. It is sure. Second Peter 1 17, I think, it says that we have the more sure word. I love that passage. I can't wait till we get through 1 Peter to get to 2 Peter. I love that passage. We turn to the Scripture for teaching, for what to believe and what 
needs to be corrected in ourselves. We believe Scripture gives us the standard for what is righteous and what's not because it is produced by God who himself is holy, righteous, and true. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So the apostle wasn't just one of many voices. He didn't allow you to pick and to choose what you wanted to believe because every bit of what we receive in the Bible in the, is, is the Word of God. Even the things that you and I tend to glance over sometimes too quickly, just like the salutations and the introductions or the closings or, or the genealogies. And I think you can see this because often when, when we talk to people, we go through the casual motions of conversations and sometimes when we greet, we say, hey, how's it going? What's new? What's going on? How's your day? And this, this part of the conversation, is it usually expected to be long and then lengthy and in-depth or is it brief, superficial? It's, meant, it's expected to be superficial and, you know, there's always that one guy who stops and starts telling you exactly everything that's going on in your day. And when it happens, you're like, oh, I shouldn't have asked this guy. But we have, we have a very impatient culture and we want to get to the action. We want to get to the meat of the letter. We want to get to the meat of the, of the movie or the book. I mean, when was the, do we have readers in here? When was the last, oh, wow, it's a lot of you guys. When was the last time, well, you, maybe you, maybe this church does, uh, do you read the foreword? Do you read the introduction to a book, or do you just start page one of chapter one? Thank you. Har- harmony right here. We want to get to the stuff that we need to know, and we need to get there quickly. And if you open up a junior high or high school textbook, you will basically see highlighted, underlined, bold, and italicized words in the textbooks. And we are trained since about that age. Just look for what you need to know. And that's it. No more. Yeah, fill in the blanks. I don't, uh, limited space up here. I've only got to put in there what needs to be. So as a pastor, as one who shepherds the people of God, Pastor Peter, I mean, this, this salutation is meaty. It is weighty. And he wants to... He wants us to receive and to grow in grace and peace. And it's so important to his central theme of the book that he begins his letter with this very exhortation. And he does something very specific here. He qualifies who it is that he's writing to. He qualifies, he's describing who it is that he's talking to. And the big doctrinal truth about the Christians that he brings up is that they are the elect of God. If you have the NASB, it's the, it's the last word of verse 1, who are chosen. That's the big doctrinal sledgehammer that dominates this salutation. And what I want to do is look at several things, look at several things we see concerning our election in Peter's opening. We will consider the believer's appearance, his nature, or the nature, the source, the sphere, the effects, and the advantage as they all pertain to your election, as they pertain to our election in God. Now, the first one is the appearance of your election. 
The first thing that Pastor Peter calls you and he calls me are aliens, sojourners, those who reside as aliens, those who are temporarily dwelling or lodging somewhere that they don't really have roots. This term did come to be used to refer specifically to a large swath of Jews whose ancestors had been dispersed as a result of the northern kingdom being conquered and divided by the Assyrian Empire some, uh, I think it's about five or six hundred years before Peter's writing these words. However, and, and, and the places that Peter is writing is within the confines of the Assyrian Empire, although it's not, I don't think it was the Assyrian Empire by this point. However, the New Testament writers, when they talk about that specific region and, that, and those specific uh, people, they use the definite article when they talk, when they, and what I mean by that is uh, they would say the dispersion or the dispersion as if to mark this out and there's no alternatives. But Peter doesn't use the article and so, rather than the dispersion acting as a noun or a title, he's using it as an adjective. It's a describing word. Those who are sojourning, those who have, those who are, those who have been dispersed. And he's writing to this dispersed group of believers across the, those listed regions, again in, in, uh, in, around Turkey or Asia Minor, with the intention of reminding them of their true heritage and their true home despite their circumstances, despite their current condition. And this becomes more clear in chapter 2, verse 11, when he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and sojourners to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So the sense in which they are aliens, the sense in which they are sojourners, is not that they are semi-Jewish uh, descendants in a non-Jewish land, it's that they have been made spiritual aliens and strangers in a world that is dominated by fleshly lusts. They are in a world where the Christian soul is at war and being constantly harassed. And what this means for all Christians, for, for you and for me, is that this world, which operates on carnality, which operates on humanism. This isn't our home. This is not our home. And I imagine some of you may have moved a bit in your life. And this sentiment of home and what's not home, maybe, maybe that is more familiar to you, that your current conditions, that your current circumstances aren't your final state. They will not last forever, yet for some of us, I imagine the younger ones, when, when you understand, when you comprehend that the ground you walk on, the house that you go home to every day, the bed you sleep in, the dinner table that you gather around every day, the yard that you play with your dog in, that's not your real home. I grew up on 25 acres in Northern California on a ranch with walnut trees and fruit trees. We had chickens and cats and dogs 
We even had a turkey and a duck, but they didn't get along. And I remember many days trudging through my orchard. I, I mean, I can, I can still recall all the slopes and the ravines. I can remember climbing trees. I can remember falling out of trees. I can remember exploring the creek. And I, can, I, I could recall every single turn and curve and incline on the road leading to my house. I, I, I bet I could drive the road blindfolded. That's how familiar I was with my home. I lived there for 30 years. And I can remember very well the sense of pride when my friends would come over and they would see, oh, you have, you have all this land. We, we'd, we'd play paintball and we'd set up barricades and we'd have so much fun. I mean, we'd do stuff on the property that town folk can only dream of. And how sweet it was to, to, to have that property. I remember the feeling of accomplishment when that house, it, it was kind of like the three little pigs' houses. It, there was some brick, but there was some wood, and there was some straw, and the redneck pig contributed some duct tape to the building. Um, and so after a while, we, we, we uh, scrapped together some funds, and we, we remodeled the house, and it, 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 was in, it was made into something nice that my mom could really enjoy. And it, I mean, I actually, I actually had a hand in the remodeling process. And it, when it was done, it, 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 that was my home. That was my home. And then it was sold. And it became someone else's home. And the mo- one of the most bizarrest feelings I've ever had in my entire life was when I stood on the property the minute that it changed ownership. And... The 25 acres that I had walked and trudged and explored and climbed and done all sorts of stuff on for 30 years, I was now trespassing on. That was, that was a very odd feeling. I, I really did not know what, 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 to, what to do with that. And this feeling, I think, would have been equally bizarre to many in Peter's audience because while today it's very common to travel and to move several times, uh, maybe even several times in your life. In the old world, it wasn't common to really venture more than 15, 20, 25 miles from your home, from where you grew up. And there were some professions that allowed you to do this. Uh, maybe if you joined the military and became a soldier, if you were a merchant, uh, if you were a sailor, you would travel and see places. But for most folk, you know what you did for work? You did what dad did. You know what your dad did for work? He did what his dad did. You know what Junior did? He does what you're doing. <laughs> you didn't leave your home near as much, if at all. And so you can imagine that feeling of the, of, of the ground that you've been on for, for years. That's being told. Imagine that, that sensation, being told, this is not your home. You are a stranger to this land. You are a stranger to this world. You are a sojourner, a foreigner, a refugee. That's what Peter calls us. Our stay here is only temporary, and one day we will be taken home. I think Ecclesiastes does a good job of expressing the sentiment that God has put into our very souls that this world and this life is not, it's not our real life. All the things that we look to for comfort, for security. 
that, 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 that isn't all there is in life. There's a sense in which the soul, upon realizing that the fates of the rich man and the fate of the poor man are the same, the fate of the privileged and the deprived, the healthy and the sick, they're all the same because ultimately where do they all go? The ground. We all pass away and no matter all that we've accrued in this world, the soul realizes that one day he must leave it all behind when it is time to leave, and he cries out that there must be more. I imagine that some of you who are more seasoned in life, who've seen what this world is like and what it has to offer, those of you who have felt what it is to age or to have suffered great loss, who have experienced tragedy, intense suffering, I think you can attest to this. And that's not to say that there are no good things in life because we believe our God is good, that life is worth living well. But we can agree with Solomon when he writes that when it comes to living in this world and presupposing that this is all there is, what does Solomon say? All is vanity and striving after the wind. And so God's people, it's no wonder that God's people have longed appropriately for heaven. They have long desired the presence of their maker to dwell with God. Jesus says in John 14, 2 and 3, that he was leaving his disciples so that he may go and he may prepare a place for for them in his father's house that one day he may return, that he may gather them unto himself and, and take them there. Paul says in Philippians 3, 20 and 21 that the believer's citizenship is where? Here? In heaven. And it's there that we, it's thereupon that we eagerly await a Savior who, as Paul says, he will transform our bodies, our earthly mortal bodies into heavenly glorified bodies. That's something I can, I can sympathize with. And if you're, if you're interested in, in that, you can look in 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8, and 1 John 3, 2. Be encouraged by, by those passages. That there is a great glorification. There is a great change coming for all those who trust in Christ. That this body we possess, Paul calls it a, uh, I think Peter calls it a tent. It's just an earthly tent that will one day be put aside. And Hebrews 11, called the Great Hall of Faith, lists the Old Testament saints, how they possessed one distinctive, one mark that, that set them apart. You know what that was? Faith. And how by faith they did amazing things, that they endured horrendous things. And particularly when it comes to Abraham, the text says that by faith, He lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Why? Because he was looking for the city whose architect and builder is God. That's Hebrews 11, 9, and 10. And then remarkably, he continues in verse verse 13, and this is true for all believers. This He says that they all died in faith without receiving the promises. I really wish that I could reverse the order of this text and instead say, 
having seen them, the promises, having seen them and welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they died. I think that, I think that delivers the weight a little more. They died without actually receiving the promises. For those who say such things make it clear they are seeking a country of their own, and if indeed they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. So these people, they are looking forward to heaven. They are looking forward to the city of God. They've been called out of their home. And the text says they had ample opportunity to look back, just like, like Lot's wife when she looked back at her home. They had opportunity to look back, but they didn't because their eyes were on heaven and on the maker of heaven. But as, as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And we see then that those who come to Christ, those who are elect, they are given the appearance of the odd man out. They are given the appearance of the estranged of this world, the pilgrim and the sojourner. This is just one of the many reasons the world looks at us and they mock us and they, they just they don't get us. That is the appearance of, of our election. The second is the nature of our election. This is in the second, uh, continuing with verse 1. And he continue, Peter continues that Christians are the chosen of God. And this word means that they're the select. That they are the subject of God's sovereign choice you know in, in the seminary they they teach us you know when, when you go to a church when you, when you preach there for the first time there are some things you know major doctrinal controversial issues maybe it's not the best thing and i honestly didn't think of uh it, it was it's not my intention to, to to bring down this doctrine as if it's a sledgehammer i don't have any desire or uh i, I don't like to proclaiming things to people that they don't want to hear. And I, I don't know where you guys are at. I, I do want to get to know each of you in the future. But at the same time, if I can say this with humility and gentleness, I don't apologize for what the Scripture says. And I hope, I hope you, re- you can receive that from me. Peter says that those to whom are given the grace and peace are the elect of God. They are the subjects of God's sovereign choice. And he he says in chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, which for someone who had been brought up with the apostles' teaching, someone who had, for people who had had the Old Testament expounded to them, that would have taken them to Deuteronomy 7, 6, where God says through Moses that to the people of Israel, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. And so Moses reminding them, and Moses reminds them in the next verse, Deuteronomy 7, 8, that the basis for their being chosen by God, the reason why they were selected by God, it wasn't because of anything they did. It wasn't because they were a great people, because in fact they were actually a very small people. They were a very unimpressive people. And if you read through the first five books of Moses, 
God and Moses both have some very humbling things to say concerning Israel that they were a stiff-necked people. So God didn't select the people because of anything they bring to the table. God didn't select them because they were good or wonderful, but solely because of his love and his faithfulness. And just as God had exercised his choice to show love and faithfulness and kindness and grace to to these people that he had chosen, irrespective of their ability to keep their covenant, irrespective of any goodness they have, irrespective of their worthiness or any kind of attribute for which we, for which man typically shows favor, God now declares to those in union with Jesus Christ, God now declares to those who have come to Christ in faith and to those, to those that belong to him, that likewise he chose them. The very nature of my salvation and your salvation is, rests in that it is built upon nothing that we bring to the table, but that at some point God looked at us who were his enemies. We who were once people of, we were once children of wrath, children of darkness. We walked in sin because sin is what we did. And he chose to place his unconditional love and his mercy on us so that through the blood of Christ, My sin, our sin, is paid for. Our debt forgiven. Our trespasses forgotten. Where I was once an enemy of God, now I am declared a friend and a child of God. And it's all all because of God. Paul says in Ephesians 1.11 that the inheritance we have in Christ is because we were predestined according to God's purposes and 2 Thessalonians 2.13 that those in the church were chosen by God from the beginning for salvation. Now, this doctrine offends, offends us, I imagine. It, it, it offends the natural man. It offends that part of us that wants to think that we brought something that we, you know, after weighing all the evidence, after weighing the facts, we made a decision for Jesus. I mean, when I was a kid, weren't, weren't we all taught to accept Jesus into our heart and, and that we are making him the Lord of our lives? To us who are saved and have brought into union with Christ, this doctrine is a humbling reminder that our contribution to being born again is just about as significant and weighty as us, as the contribution that we put forth into our being born naturally. Which, last time I checked, we were the passive uh, participants in that whole process. It's humbling because it reminds us that this is all of God. And if it weren't for God's merciful intervention. We would be right there with the rest of the world on the way to condemnation and judgment, which would be which we would rightfully deserve. 
it's a comforting truth that many within the visible church cannot claim because they are being fed lies that they have to maintain a certain level of good works or that they have to tithe enough to show their faith or that they need to do this or they need to do that to earn God's blessing and to make sure that they're still good in heaven's eyes. It's comforting to know that when God declares me justified and righteous, therefore I am acceptable and pleasing in his sight. What what, what was it you said this morning? Uh, I am no longer intolerable. Because I have been made righteous, I have been justified by God's declaration. And when he calls you and me a child and a friend, that's great to know. Especially when, life, when our life turns to mud, which it can't, which it most likely will. So we looked at the appearance of our election, that we are we're the pilgrims. We looked at the nature of election, that it is on the basis of God's choice. Now we look at the source of our election, the first part of verse 2. Peter says that the believer's election is according to the foreknowledge of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, some may say that this means that God in the past could look down the tunnel of time and he could see what man was going to do and so his selection of them was influenced or dependent uh, upon their selection of him. And I would say that's putting the cart before the horse. The word foreknowledge here speaks of knowing or, or it speaks of a, of a predetermination, of, of determining something beforehand. And you can see Peter used the very same word in chapter 1, verse 20, to speak of God foreknowing or predetermining to send Christ as the means of redemption before the foundation of the world. That is to say that God possessed a full predetermined knowledge of what he would do on, on my behalf. And this isn't, uh, this isn't a two-way, this isn't a conditional intention like I'm gonna, when I go home and if I see that Junior has cleaned his room and done all his chores, then I will determine, I've determined that if he's done all that, I'll take him out to ice cream. This is... This is a determined, kind intention to show favor towards those who don't deserve it. And, it, and this, this phrase does two things for us. It reaffirms what's already been implied by the term election, in that our salvation is by God's choice. But furthermore, practically, it, it reminds us that God is God and that we are not. God alone has perfect and complete knowledge. God alone can see through time. And this is because God exists outside of every aspect of creation. And I would put forth that poor or false theological propositions come about when man desires to understand something about the divine but can't because there are so many ways that God is just not, is so unlike us. And so... Sometimes man settles on unsure theological ground thinking, boy, I've really found something now. If you look at the historical table of heresy, they're all there because of one facet of theology, because of one facet of God's revelation that people have had difficulty in grasping. 
An election may be difficult for us to grasp, but you know what? That's okay. That's okay. There are things in Scripture that even Peter says are hard to grasp. You can see that in Second Peter chapter 3. But nevertheless, at the end of the day, we can still affirm what God has said. At the end of the day, I say we let God be God. So, the source of our election, uh, I'm sorry, we've seen the appearance of our election, the nature, and the source. Now we're going to look at the sphere of our election. This is in the second second phrase of verse 2. Peter tells us the where, the means of the salvation. And what I mean by that is, where do you go to see it? Working. Where do you go to see it applied? Where do you go to see it given to you? And that happens within the sphere of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. With our salvation being firmly planted in the knowledge of God in eternity past, the Holy Spirit at some point, He comes to, He came to me, He came to you, and He regenerated you. He granted you new life, Titus 3 5. He gave each of us the gift of faith, Philippians 1.29, Ephesians 2.8. He gave us the means to, to walk in repentance, Acts 11.18. He did things in us. He enabled us to do things we could not do without. We could not walk in the Spirit. We could not bear His fruit. We could not have faith. We could not walk in real repentance. We could not have sorrow over sin. Why? Well, Jesus says in John 1 that the natural man, does he love light or does he love darkness? Why? Because if he comes to the light, his sins, his evil deeds will be exposed. Rather, he runs from the light. He hides from the light. If he can... He expunges the light. The natural man loves his sin. And it would be unnatural for him to give it up, to walk in a way contrary to it. And that is where we were until the Holy Spirit came and did his work in us. According to the kind foreknowledge of the Father, setting us apart. The reality then is that we are now different from the world and that we've been made in something entirely new, our very nature being changed. And this affirms that the Spirit's work in us is indeed sanctifying. It sets us apart. It makes us different. I think uh, second to the last point, and they're getting shorter. The effects of our election. The effects of our election. This is in the third, uh, the third phrase. He gives, Peter gives two reasons why the Father chose the elect. He says, to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. And ra- that right there, that right there is a huge contrast to what I hear on the, on the Christian radio, on the internet, on Facebook. That came as a shock because I thought Facebook was a great place to find theological truth. There are many who will say that being a Christian means that God has a wonderful plan for your life, that God has health and wealth and prosperity stored up for you. And all you need to do 
is, I mean, God is basically a cosmic genie. All you need to do is uh, just rub that theological lamp the right way with the right religiosity, and all that, all that blessing will just pour down on you. That's that's what being a Christian is all about, right? That's the end and that's the net goal of Christianity, right? Right? No, no, no. Others will say that the end of pers- uh, of Christianity. That the goal of Christianity, the, per, the, the, the purpose of our faith, is that we would be good people showing love and tolerance to our, na- to our neighbor. That we need to be full of good works. Again, that's putting the cart before the horse because all these things point to man's work and the merits that really, they don't do anything for your salvation. Pastor Carl has been going through James. And what's that, faith, what's that phrase he's been saying, true faith? Works, works. And so these counterfeits will say that you need to work to earn your salvation because that's what, because working, being a good person, doing good works is what being a Christian is all about. But as Pastor Carl said going through James, we do good works because of our salvation. And we see that tie in right here that the result, the effect, the consequence of being saved, the fruit of being saved is good works, which is what Peter says in verse 2. You don't do good works to get saved. You do good works because you have been saved, because you have been elect. And Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, Christ's, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Being a Christian means doing the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. Good works are a natural part of who we are. And Peter doesn't just leave it vague. He gets specific when he talks about the nature of our good works and that they are exercised as obedience to who? Jesus Christ. A true Christian is not born when someone realizes God has a wonderful plan for their life. A true Christian is born when the Spirit grants the capacity for someone to grasp the truth that Christ is God, that Christ deserves all praise and honor and majesty and glory. We were elected to serve and obey Christ. And secondly, he says, to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ. This would take the church's minds to the, to the old covenant where uh, the people and the book of the law were sprinkled with the blood of the, of the covenant. Where the, where the people and God had a bilateral obligation to keep to one another. And when we look at the Old Testament, we don't see the, the Israel doing a good job of keeping up their end of the bargain. Which is why they, which was why the covenant was broken. But in the new covenant, the blessed difference is that the new covenant is unilateral, which means Christ did the work for us. That those who come to Christ cannot be cast out of the covenant. You, beloved, listen, you and I, we enjoy innumerable blessings in Jesus Christ and they are fully attributed 
to you, not because of your merit, and there's nothing you can do to lose them. They are yours because Christ earned them for you on your behalf. If you, re, if you look at the beginning of Ephesians, Paul says that, that God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Lastly, we look at the advantage. We look at the advantage of our election. And this is, this is where we're tying it back into what I said at the beginning. Now, considering what God has done on your behalf, when you stop and think about the mercy and the kindness that God has planned to bestow on you since eternity past, not because of anything you did, not because of anything you were going to do, but because of his good intention, because, because of his kind goodwill, when you realize that because of Christ. Jesus, blessings innumerable and eternal life belong to you. It bears greater weight when the Apostle Peter writes to you, may grace, may, may, grace, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. When he introduces these words in the salutation, they don't carry the featherweight intent of goodwill that you and I usually say when we're like, oh, have a good day, have a good one, catch you later, alligator. With a greater contemplation of the grace and peace that is rightfully ours because of what God has bestowed upon us through Christ, don't you feel the weight of this incredible blessing and privilege that it is to be the elect of God. The hope and inheritance of heaven. The benevolence of his predetermined goodwill. The sanctifying work of the Spirit in which you and I, who, who are all guilty of things that we would never want to admit, we have been made a new creation the privilege and honor it is to serve the Lord, the comfort it is to be sprinkled by His atoning blood and declared forever righteous. All these are yours because of God's sovereign, unconditional choice to make you His. And with all that in mind, Peter says, let grace and peace be yours abundantly. Let, it be your, let them be yours in the fullest measure. Now, Peter has more to say concerning Jesus, and everything he says as we go through this book is going to help us to under to more greatly understand the goodness he exercised for us, and thereby we may grow in our appreciation and adoration of the great and good Savior we have. Amen. I look forward to going through this marvelous book with you.